Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit World Wars podcast. If it's your first time here, we are dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. I'm your host, James Rogers, and you join us for a special episode of The World Wars to mark International Holocaust Remembrance Day. As the US Holocaust Memorial Museum defines, the Holocaust was the systematic, bureaucratic, state-sponsored persecution and murder of six million Jewish men, women, and children by the Nazis and its collaborators. In addition to this, historians now include the persecution of Roma and black populations by the Nazis as more of a hidden, forgotten Holocaust. To explain more, we're joined by world expert Professor Eve Rosenhaft. Eve is a historian of modern Germany at the University of Liverpool, and her research on the Holocaust has taken her around the world. She's been a visiting professor at King's College, Cambridge, the US Holocaust Memorial Museum Centre for Advanced Holocaust Studies, and the Free University of Berlin, amongst many, many others. What's special about Eve's research is that it focuses right in on the oppression of black Germans and Roma peoples, and it provides us with a much-needed understanding of how varied and deeply sinister the expressions of Nazi racism really were. So here is Professor Eve Rosenhaft on The Hidden Holocaust. Hi Eve, thank you so much for coming on The World Wars. How are you doing today? Hi, thanks for having me. I'm fine. In Good spite day. of the weather and the pandemic. In spite of the weather and the pandemic. Yeah, well, how has your new year been? Because I know you're a professor at the University of Liverpool, so it must be pretty tough. Are you doing Zoom teaching or are you trying to transition to in-person? How does it work? Well, I'm in the happy position of being 80% retired. So I haven't had to face the challenges of Zoom teaching in the last year either here or where I've actually been for the last two years in uh, Seoul, in South Korea. In Seoul, at least, I could interact with students because the universities were still sort of open and I was working in the university. Here, I'm at home. I see no students. Actually, I chat to my Korean students mostly. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, that's great that I suppose there's one positive element is that we've all been able to interact more internationally as Zoom and Skype and everything else has become a bit more every day, I guess. Yeah, that's true. I've talked to people over longer distances than I ever did before, really. Being, on the whole, a telephone allergic, 
Yeah, no, I'm the same, but I think I'm quickly becoming Zoom allergic as well. So an extra thank you for coming on to this one and for our Zoom recording of this special of the World Wars. And it is a special episode because it coincides with International Holocaust Remembrance Day. And you are, of course, a world expert on this topic. So perhaps we can start with some of the facts. How is it best to define and describe the Holocaust? And on what scale did the Nazis commit atrocities? Well, I think now we can talk about the Holocaust. And I say this because most scholars who see themselves as scholars of the Holocaust do this. And the principal Holocaust museums, which are in the business of organizing and communicating knowledge about the Holocaust, do it too. The Holocaust is now seen as a complex of practices carried out by the German state within Germany and in its occupied territories during the Second World War, and also by those states that were allied to Nazi Germany during the war. The largest single group, the group whose death and suffering first gave name to the Holocaust is, of course, European Jews, of whom it's normally said six million died, were murdered systematically in a process that began with in Germany with their systematic exclusion from German society, their internment, their deportation, and ended with massacres on the Eastern Front and finally with systematic gassing in the so-called death camp, of which, of course, Auschwitz is the best known and also is the reason why we're commemorating the Holocaust at the end of January, because it commemorates the liberation of Auschwitz. That said, the death of six million Jews is the most appalling and the best known of the dimensions of the Holocaust. But if we think about Auschwitz itself as a fact and a symbol, then we might remember that there were people who died in Auschwitz who were not Jews. A significant large group among them, tens of thousands, was Europe's Sintian Roma or gypsies. The internment, deportation, murder, sterilization, brutalization of Sinti and Roma, of gypsies all over Europe, has come to be recognized as another dimension of what we call Holocaust. And they're the largest single group after the Jews who were the object of genocidal policies designed in terms of race, where again, what we know best is the application to the Jews. But those racial policies which had in the long term had developed a genocidal intent, were applied also to black people in Germany. And if we extend our definition of genocidal and racial to include people who by their biological existence were seen to threaten Germany, then we have as a third victim group, the disabled, hundreds of thousands of disabled and incurably sick people who were, again, systematically murdered in Germany before and during the Second World War. Now, all of these groups are now considered under the umbrella of Holocaust, as I say, by scholars, by museum practitioners. And my own sense is that that's a good place to stop the definition of Holocaust, although anyone who's been to a Holocaust museum knows that the range of victims of the Nazi regime was wider still and included political opponents, for example. They're often 
taken in under the umbrella of Holocaust. So let's go into these little known or forgotten aspects, I suppose, of the Holocaust and focus in on the Roma peoples. When did the internment of Roma peoples in Germany begin? The important thing about the persecution of Roma in Nazi Germany and across Europe is that it was a direct continuation of police practices of harassment and discrimination, requirements for identity papers, and popular hostility and stereotyping that existed well before Second World War that was being institutionalized even in the 1920s. And it's important to understand that as the background to what I'm about to say, which is that the first internments of Roma in Germany took place from about 1935 on. And I'm thinking now about, in fact, two categories of internment. So mass internment specifically of Roma begins around 1935, and it's a practice organized not by the Nazi central government, but by local authorities. These local authorities had by 1934 largely been Nazified, but their decisions to build special camps, so-called gypsy camps, on the edge of towns like Cologne, like Magdeburg, like Berlin, almost any place you look, any major city in Germany now historians have identified the existence of an internment camp for gypsies as such. And that decision was made very much as the happy end to a long struggle by the municipal authorities to get control of what they described as a gypsy nuisance. And it was very often motivated by members of the local community who would petition the city government. One of the interesting things there, I think, And we can see this also in the case of the persecution of Black people. And we see it in Europe and America now that the very fact of having a Nazi government empowered people to express their own racism more often, more openly, and to, in that sense, prompt and then collaborate with the authorities in these little local actions, which help them to feel more comfortable by getting rid of their undesirable neighbours, but mark the start of a long process then of persecution. Yeah, I suppose it's fascinating to reflect on that point, actually, because this isn't evil by decree, top-down from the Nazis alone, but this is a deeply embedded, long-term, brewing social racism that's empowered by the Nazis. And like you say, that's something so important to consider on this day of international memorial and remembrance for the Holocaust and some of the ways in which it perhaps chimes a little too close to the world we live in today. But yeah, please do give us some more details on this more formalised internments, because from some of the histories I've read, there were the so-called gypsy camps at places like Auschwitz-Birkenau, And some historians have suggested that it was easier for the Roma populations there because they had more freedom than the Jewish sections. Is that true? Okay, yeah. Let me talk about the gypsy camp in Auschwitz because that's really the centre of Roma Holocaust memory. And it's also the kind of crux of the story of the way in which they were persecuted by the Nazis in ways that in their own experience were comparable to that of the Jews 
but in ways that were very particular to them and that led to very particular kinds of hurts. About 25,000, maybe 23,000 Roma from Germany and Czechoslovakia mainly were interned in a special section of Auschwitz-Birkenau. It was set apart from the other barracks. It was immediately adjacent to the gas chambers and it was also immediately adjacent to the medical facility where Josef Mengele was engaged in his medical experiments. They were interned there on the basis of an order that was issued by Heinrich Himmler at the end of 1942, in which he decreed that all Balkan gypsies and mixed blood gypsies in German occupied territory, certainly in New Reich, should be sent to a concentration camp. And the process by which it was decided that Auschwitz should be that camp continues to be the subject of discussion among historians. The deportations from Germany began in March 1943. They say about 20,000 Germans, Sinti and Roma, were probably deported in cattle wagons. Such property as they still had was confiscated in the same way as the property of Jews who were deported to Auschwitz was confiscated, using the same forms. So that if you look at the records that were produced by the finance office in Berlin, which kept a file on what property had been confiscated, because when this property was confiscated, it was taken over by the city government and then auctioned. You look at those documents, and what you see, as I say, is a form, a printed form, that says the property of the Jew so-and-so has been confiscated on the basis of thus and such a law on the date of their removal to Auschwitz. And some of the bureaucrats had the sense to cross out Jew and write gypsy. But some of them were so convinced they were still dealing with Jews that they gave these Roma deportees a middle name of Sarah or Israel, which Jews had been compelled to take under the Nazis. And there was an order that actually went out in this context of confiscation to treat them like the Jews. So the manner of their deportation was very similar to that of the Jews. When they arrived in Auschwitz, though, they didn't face that separation on the ground. They were housed as families and there was no systematic gassing. They were simply put into these barracks in the so-called family camp. Some people were gassed for various reasons, including poor health and so on, but that was a very significant difference. No immediate elimination and being housed as families. And that's why some people said, and said at the time, other inmates of the camp, People who worked in the gypsy camp observed that the Roma, the gypsies, had it better than the Jews. From the point of view of the Roma themselves, it looked quite different. The conditions under which they were held were those of extreme filth and hunger. They were forced to carry out heavy labor tasks of various kinds. Whole families lived together. They were allowed to keep their own clothes and they didn't have to cut their hair. But the clothes they had were largely rags. Epidemic disease went through the camp, was rampant. 
and in particular a disease that was known then as NOMO, which is a sort of cancer of, that destroys your skin. Men and women lived together. They had children. Children were born in this camp and about 200 infants were born and died there. And they died mainly of natural causes because the conditions weren't conditions in which an infant could survive. Women were subject to sexual exploitation by the guards and indeed by other prisoners. There's a song that the Polish political prisoners who lived on the other side of the wire would sing. And it was a song about the gypsy girls on the other side of the wire. And the song is a song to a gypsy girl saying, dance, please dance, show me your legs and I'll throw you some cigarettes, which is a tragic example of the cost of survival under these conditions. The other thing about the family camp in Auschwitz is that the conditions in which these people were living ran completely counter to all of their cultural expectations. Now, you wouldn't expect anybody to be happy, to survive, to retain their sanity under the conditions that prevailed there. And we have lots of evidence of what it meant for people in all parts of Auschwitz to survive. The Roma typically, they were very family-centered and that's why Himmler made the calculation that they should be deported and kept as families in order to prevent their resisting. But those families were very patriarchal and they were very hierarchical in generational terms. And survivors from the family camp report that it was particularly shocking to them to have to see their older relations naked, to be in the washroom or on the latrine with their father, their mother, their aunt next to them, and to watch them being humiliated, of course. It was also the case that the way the Nazi concentration camps always operated was to have capos, to have prisoners in charge of other prisoners. And in the family camp, it was the younger men, some of whom had served in the army, who were put in charge over the rest of the Roma inmates. And this was, again, a total reversal of the structures of authority that were typical of those families. So survivors talk about how the purpose of the family camp in Auschwitz was to destroy them as a people, as well as to physically destroy them. I mean, that was the upshot for most of them. So the first Germans, Sinti and Roma, arrived in March 1943. From the middle of 1944, there were plans to dissolve the camp, to close it down. And there were, I think, three occasions on which the SS did a selection and sent relatively able-bodied men and women back to Germany as slave laborers to concentration camps. Some of them survived, others didn't then survive that last phase. Some of them died on death marches in the last months of the war. Many of them ended up in Bergen-Belsen as last station before they were liberated. At the end of July, the beginning of August, 1944, the camp was finally closed down and the last, now we think 4,000 people still living in the camp were taken to the gas chambers and killed there. 
Himmler's fear that the Zinti and Roma would resist seems to have been realized to some extent. In May 1944, survivors reported that there was a first attempt to close down the camp, to drag the remaining inmates out, kill them, and close it down. And on that occasion, the 16th of May, 1944, there were certainly acts of resistance. And again, survivors believe that this actually forced the SS to postpone the closure of the camp until the end of July. They were pretty tough, the folks in that camp. It's amazing, isn't it, even at that stage, after many years of being interned, to be able to find the strength to rise up and resist against your oppressor. It's also quite remarkable to hear how Himmler weaponized their culture, their heritage, their history in some insidious and sinister manner in order to make their internment even worse than it possibly could be. And of course, these weren't the only peoples who were oppressed during this period. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Would you mind taking us through the history of what happened to black Germans under the Nazis as well? Black Germans, like Sinti and Roma, were declared under the terms of the Nuremberg Laws of 1935 to be of alien blood. The Nuremberg Laws, as is very well known, were originally promulgated in the autumn of 1935, and originally the only racial group named in those laws was the Jews. But there was a follow-up ruling that most of the provisions of the Nuremberg Laws applied to so-called gypsies and black people as well. 
So in principle, black people were in the sights of the regime for what the Nazis would have called special treatment. Their experience was quite particular, however, and I think it's important that thinking in terms of the wording of the Nuremberg laws, in the case of both Zinti and Roma and black people, the term that was typically used was, and I'll just stick with blacks, was blacks and their mongrel children were acting. The focus with black people was the problem of mixed blood. And that had particular consequences for a generation of people who were born in Germany after about the turn of the century to parents who were in mixed marriages. The official policy towards black people, although the Nuremberg laws were tidied up to the extent of extending to them, policy was less focused and less actively genocidal than in the case of either the Jews or the Roma. And there was never a systematic internment or gathering up of black people, bearing in mind that there were relatively few. I've seen the figure of 25,000 black people, people of color in Germany in the 1930s has been floating around, but I don't know where it comes from. There weren't all that many of them, and they tended to live individually in their own families spread out among the majority population. So any intention of picking up all of them would have been difficult. Though There was an order that went out in 1942 saying that all local authorities in Germany and the occupied territories should report on the numbers of Blacks. So we can kind of see a long-term prospect of registering and, I think, indeed eliminating Black people from the population. So there wasn't this official policy of rounding up and internment of the black population in Germany. But when there is created such a hostile environment since the Nazis came to power in 33 and of course the laws in 35 and onwards, is there more of a implicit policy of victimization? Because just by their very heritage, these people would have stood out in what was a time where the master race and an Aryan aesthetic was meant to be preferred in society. So was there more of an undertone of racism that saw black people in Germany very much the priority and attention of police forces? Yeah, I'm not sure about priority, but certainly they're under the eye. As early as 1934, there was a draft of a new penal code that would have criminalized consorting in public between black people and white people. And that's an example, among other things, of how far in this department, Nazi racial policy was looking towards American models. That didn't happen, but it's a signal of the extent to which precisely the existence of mixed marriages was seen as a scandal. A mixed couple was visible and Mixed couples were subject to harassment almost from day one of the Nazi regime by the local SS, by local Nazis. And then increasingly, survivors or people who lived through that period report how they would be spat on as the children of mixed marriages. They would be spat on on the street. They would be harassed by their teachers at school and in effect excluded from school 
even before it became a matter of implicit and then explicit policy for them to be excluded from school. They were certainly denied the right to professional training. There's examples of people who wanted to train as dancers, as engineers, who weren't able to follow that up. As a result, they became subject to forced labor of various kinds in the late 1930s and during the war. And in particular, a problem most of them faced was that as the children of people who had not acquired German citizenship, they were officially foreigners. The core of the Black German population in the 20s and 30s were former colonial subjects of Germany from Africa and their families. And most of them had always been subjects of Germany of some kind, but had never acquired citizenship. After 1935, they couldn't claim citizenship anyway. And so a number of stories of Black people in Nazi Germany is that they ended up in what were, in effect, forced labor camps for foreign workers. Probably the most traumatic experience of Black people in Nazi Germany was that of forced sterilization. And there's a story about that that's very well known. And this is a story of the so-called Rhineland children. At the end of the First World War, parts of Western Germany and the Rhineland were occupied by French troops. And the French army brought in troops from their African colonies as part of the occupation force. And some of these men developed relationships with local women. This became an international scandal in the sense that it was treated as a scandal, particularly by the political right, though not only by the right and not only in Germany, and is also remembered by Black people who lived through that period as a kind of beginning of virulent popular racism against them, kind of the moment at which it takes off in a society whose experience with the color bar had been very limited to them. By the 1930s, Children born to the women who had had relationships with French African soldiers were coming up to their teens. And the kind of people who worry about these kinds of things were beginning to think, okay, they're going to have to start getting married and having children now. What are we going to do? There were discussions going on right from, certainly from the beginning of the Nazi period, and I think even before, about whether they should be sterilized. In the event, Starting in 1937, about 400 of them were compulsory sterilized. So that's the largest single group of Black victims, and what they're victims of is sterilization. The research over the last few years has shown that being sterilized, the fear of being sterilized, the knowledge that your friends had been sterilized and that you might be dominated the experience, particularly of young Black people. In Nazi Germany. Has there ever been a public memorial to the Black Germans and what they suffered under the Nazi regime? Not that I'm aware of. There are Stolpersteine. The Stolpersteine are metal plaques set into the pavement in German cities. And it's a memorial project that was developed by a particular artist in Cologne, I think, but has become national and even international, where Stolpersteine and other parts of the world 
And these plaques are typically placed in front of the house where somebody lived who was a victim of the Nazis. Most of them are memorials to Jews, but there's at least one Stolperstein to a black victim of the Nazis, Muhammad Hussein, who was one of two black men who we know died as a result of being accused of having sexual relations with a white woman. So it was a, death was on the cards, but it wasn't a widespread phenomenon. Doesn't this sound disturbingly familiar to the racist terror lynchings that were continuing in America at this time? It's those sort of crimes that would get you stoned to death or hung in the US as well. And we've had historians on this podcast before, Shama Ams, the fantastic Shama Ams, talking about how even when black GIs and officers went back to the US, they were continuing and continually the focus, because they'd served for their country, the focus of racist terror lynchings um, in the United States. It's, um, it's remarkable to think that on both sides of the war, black people were being oppressed. Yes, indeed. I mean, one thing that there's a, a space about the experience of black Germans, and that's simply the fact that for a period and to some extent they were protected by virtue of the fact that Hitler hoped to recover Germany's colonies in Africa. Because most of these people had been colonial subjects or were the families of colonial subjects or could pretend to be colonial subjects, a practice already existed in the 1920s and 1930s of a certain amount of state sponsorship for people who found it harder and harder to get work and so on. That continued into the 1930s in the form of both of allowing Black people to perform in films, which had a colonial theme. And one of the actors in those films was Mohammed Hussein, who I said died in a concentration camp as a result of his relationship with a white woman. And also there was formed what was known as the German Africa Show, originally formed by a private entrepreneur and a Black German performer, one of a number of traveling performance troops in which people like this were involved anyway. And it then came to be sponsored by the Nazi authorities for a while with the specific purpose, with two purposes. One was to carry on propaganda for the German colonies. And so what the Africa show did was to travel around and have black performers, most of whom were born in Germany, some of whom were actually African-Americans or Afro-Caribbeans and all kinds of people got together on this show and praise the life in the German colonies and the products that came from the German colonies and pretend to be African native, which was another tradition of voluntary and compulsory performance on the part of Black people right back into the late 19th century. So they're pretending to be Africans. They're talking about how great life is and was in the colonies. And in fact, the Africa show was closed down at the point at which the Black Africans on the stage started addressing the white Germans in the audience as our brothers. As they, you know, they're trying to promote the idea of this kind of great colonial brotherhood, but that particular discourse wasn't working in Nazi Germany. So it came to an end. But the other purpose of the Africa show was very specifically to keep these people under control. 
so that the authorities could have an eye on them, know who they were and where they were. And that, I suppose, kind of prefigures what we see developing during wartime then, which is a more comprehensive notion about doing something with Black people and also beginnings of first evidence of people being arrested and interned in concentration camps simply for being Black. Well, Eve, thank you so much. At the beginning of this podcast, you said the Holocaust is far more complex than we often like to remember. And you have reminded us about just how varied the expressions of Nazi racism was during and before the Second World War. Can I just ask, and I think it's probably more important in this episode than any other, where can people learn more about these experiences? The Vino Library, for example, has recently done exhibitions focusing on, on the one hand on Roma victims and on the other on Black victims through the eyes of the experience of a particular Afro-German. And both of those exhibitions, I think, are still online. The Imperial War Museum, many people will be aware, has had a very distinguished Holocaust gallery for many years. That gallery is now under redevelopment. It's due to open in March 2021. The last I heard was they have to open whether they like it or not. I mean, <laughs> they've had a number of delays, but it will open. And that gallery, the curators of the IWM have given a lot of time to trying to tell the story, not just of the Shoah, the mass murder of the Jews, but of the other victims and to integrate that into the overall narrative. I think we could say the same for the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, which is a much bigger animal, a much bigger machine and much slower to change, but the curators there too are taking account of this wider picture. Necessarily, I think, because it's so present in the minds of historians and what's in the minds of historians is in books and I could give you a bibliography. <laughs> <laughs> well, people are looking for things to read in lockdown and of course they can read your own work on this which is some great articles, especially some shorter pieces in uh, the conversation which I've read and I really do recommend as well. Thank you. Not a problem at all. Eve, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.